Today on Pilot's Discretion, we're talking about aviation trends with longtime analyst Richard Abulafia. He shares his opinion on supersonic business jets, electric airplanes, and what's going on with the airlines. Pilot's Discretion starts right now. Hello, Pilots. I'm John Zimmerman of Sporties, and welcome to Pilots Discretion. Today, I'm excited to have Richard Abulafia on the show. He is simultaneously one of the most respected and most incisive aviation analysts around. I've enjoyed reading his work for many years because he's not afraid to be brutally honest when needed, which I think you'll hear today. He worked at Jane's Information Group and then edited the Teal Group's World Military and Civil Aircraft Briefing for many years. Today, he is a managing director at Aerodynamic Advisory and has written for many outlets, including Aviation Week, Forbes, and Professional Pilot. Richard, welcome to Pilot's Discretion. Ah, It's great to be here, John. Thanks for having me on. I'd like to get your thoughts on the boom in business aviation right now. This is a story that has been reported, but I feel like most people, even pilots, don't really understand just how busy some of these companies like NetJets or Wheels Up are right now. What's driving the biz jet boom right now, and where do you think we are in that cycle? Yeah, you know, it, it's uh, it's sort of taken a life beyond just a mere cycle. Uh, it's pretty impressive. Um, you know, first of all, the um, Part 91K, Part 135 charter and fractional and all that other stuff is way above where it was back in 2019 pre uh, pandemic, um, flight departments are, are, I believe just, uh, above that too, in terms of activity or getting there. Um, it's <laughs> just very impressive. Obviously it was driven by, uh, a combination of, a you know, of concerns about crowded airport terminals, uh, along with service cutbacks in the scheduled airlines, um, as well as a high level of wealth creation at the top. You know, the past couple of years have been surprisingly good for uh, the stock market and whatever else, corporate profits, whatever else. Um, the big question as the pandemic ends is service is restored to the nation's network airlines and whatever else. Do the people who've joined BizEv uh, stay? And some of them are just going to go back to business as usual. But it's pretty clear that at least a percentage, maybe 15, maybe 20 of the newcomers are going to stick around. And that's fantastic. It lists, lifts the industry to a, a new higher level. How far do you think that has trickled down? Uh, has it made it down into the world of the lighter end of general aviation? Or is the boom there mostly just flight training driven by the airline market? You know, it seems pretty broad. You know, you look at demand for, say, turboprops or whatever else, it's uh, it's above where it was. Um, so it, it seems like it's pretty broad. Now, you know, training requirements are up. Um, shared fleets, fractionals, charters using smaller aircraft, turboprops, and whatever else, that's nicely up, too. Um, this appears to be a fairly democratic uptick, if you want to call it that. You know, it's not just the, the usual, you know, the, the phenomenon we've seen in the business for the past decade or so has been wonderful fortunes for $80 million jets, you know, Gulfstream 650s, Globals, whatever else. But you looked at your Cessnas, you looked at your, you know, uh, Embraer's, whatever, not so much. This appears to be far more widely spread. And that's certainly welcome news. You mentioned the $80 million Gulfstreams. There's been 
a lot of headlines for a lot of years about supersonic business jets. Uh, they seem to be five years away and perpetually so. But uh, recently there's been news on both sides. Arion closed up shop, but Boom is still making a lot of noise. Do you think we'll ever see a supersonic business jet? You know, it's funny. I first worked on that something like, oh boy, got to be 25 years ago. And it seemed like a decent idea um, with one big caveat, which is that there are, of course, enormous trades in designing a supersonic business jet. It's not like a you know free lunch. Oh, wow, it just goes faster. We throw money at it. You have to compromise an awful lot, most obviously in cabin and in range. You can't do Trans-Pacific very easily, if at all. Um, cabin, you get a much smaller cabin. Basically, you know, Arion was a very honest proposal. Like everything they did was, yep, this is the way it's going to be. You're going to spend $120 million on something that looks like uh, a supercharged Learjet cabin. <laughs> okay, so it's a $35 million jet hiding in a $120 million jet. Okay, that is really what supersonics look like. Um, yeah. Now, what percentage of the ultra high end, yes, I can afford $120 million market, is willing to say, I don't care about the cabin. I don't care about flying to Tokyo. I just want to go supersonic. There's got to be somebody. Um, and my, our feeling was, looking at it over the years, that there is you know, a market in the hundreds, a couple hundred, maybe three, four hundred, something like that. Will somebody be able to you know, throw in the three, four, five billion in non-recurring money, development money needed to make the bespoke product that meets that demand. Boy, with Arion dead, I'm not so sure who would. Boom is really going after commercial passengers. You know, they've designed an eighty million dollar sorry, not eighty million dollar, eighty eighty seat jet, which will sell for hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I find the whole thing bizarre, to be honest. It And what they produced at Farnborough, we were at Farnborough when they unveiled the new aircraft. It looked a lot like a B-58 Hustler nuclear bomber back from 1960. I was just baffled. Like, why not stick four J-79 engines under it and uh, call it a day? Um, so I, I don't understand it at all. So the answer is the plane I did understand is dead. The plane I don't understand still going. How much of that is dependent on regulatory reform where I could really fly supersonic New York to LA instead of just to London? Well, it's a combination of regulatory change and technology progress. Some interesting research in shaping booms or, you know, just modifying engines or whatever else, basically ameliorating the impact of hitting supersonic speed. Um, and there's some interesting progress there. The answer is that you know, the truth is somewhere in the middle. There can be changes made at the regulatory level and technological progress. I don't think that's the showstopper. The showstopper is economics, uh, both the cost of creating this stuff and, of course, finding people who are willing to pay that premium. But it, it's it's not going to be the, the boom or the, you know, uh, regulations against the boom itself. We can't talk about hype and new airplanes without mentioning EV tall aircraft and air mobility plans. There's been all kinds of news over the last five, six years about this. Companies like Joby and Archer, but I think sometimes overlooked as the big players here. Boeing invested in Whisk. Embraer has made some moves. You seem skeptical, as many people are. You wrote recently, quote, advanced air mobility looks like a very messy $10 billion bubble. Why is that? 
Yeah, I like to correct myself, and now it looks like a very messy twenty million, twenty million dollar <laughs> bubble. I mean, it, it, whatever number you like, right? I mean, it, these look like helicopters, and yes, there's all kinds of technological progress in them. Obviously, the electric motor, but in terms of again, getting back to me being a hammer in search of a nail, you know, <laughs> economics. How often are you or I given exclusive access to the use? of a $4 million tool of any kind. doesn't happen to me too often, sadly. You know, um, I think I, <laughs> I was once alone in an extremely expensive elevator, elevator in a skyscraper. Other than that, it, it just doesn't happen. Um, like Uber for dot, 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 you know, the last time I took an Uber, I think its economic value was about 10,000, not 4 million. So the idea that there's going to be this mass market where capital costs just go away. Someone else pays for those $4 million air vehicles, to say nothing of the well-trained helicopter pilot who's in charge of this thing. Um, it's just bizarre to me. Now, is there is there a market for some kind of EV toll taking over or perhaps even stimulating part of the vertical flight market? Yes. Now, that the vertical flight market, in terms of just looking at the machinery, you know, light pistol, light turbines and pistons, it's about a billion dollars a year. Could you get to two billion? Sure. Um, there are hundreds of people who want to break into this market. The result will be carnage. This has echoes of another episode in aviation, which you were uh, an astute observer of 20 years ago with the very light jet boom and air taxis and day jet and how that was going to transform the world. You wrote recently, I think we all learned from this debacle. Never again will grifters and techno-utopians pull a fast one on unsuspecting rubes with too much money. And you say that tongue-in-cheek because obviously that seems to be what's happening here. Why do you think it keeps happening? What, what is it about the aviation market that these type of bubbles keep blowing up? Yeah, thanks. Great question. And I would, I would broaden the conversation. I would say, well, what's the number one characteristic of the world economy now, which is probably just too much cash, just chasing too few good ideas. <laughs> and you, you couple that with a weird, weird, weird Silicon Valley way of thinking about it. You and I put money down in our investments for retirement, whatever. You think, all right, I, I sure hope I earn five or whatever percent per year. That'd be nice, you know, you know, retire. That'd be great. The Silicon Valley way of doing it is you throw you know, every fund out there in Silicon Valley throws 10 or 20 or 50 million at 100 or 500 different targets. If half of them die or two thirds of them die, or all of them die except for one, and that one resembles Amazon or Uber, they've done it. They've cracked the code. So you, in other words, you can always get these parcels of incremental funding from somebody who's going to take a chance at you. Do they do a whole lot of due diligence? No, they don't need to. They're looking for one out of 100 to be a unicorn. And so there's a lot of cash sloshing around that way, enabling these companies to just sort of, you know, go on for a bit. I think Boom is probably the same model. You know, at Farnborough, they had this really big chalet. Are they an aircraft company? No. <laughs> do they have any revenue whatsoever? No but they've got enough people to give them 10 million here, 20 million there, 40 million there, that you can make a big splash, hire a bunch of people, and maybe one day the bill will come due. But in the meantime, life is great. 
And why do you think the aviation industry is sometimes nervous about calling out some of these schemes? Do we do we want them to work, or is it just that we feel like we don't understand these uh, big smart technology investors? Why do a lot of people seem to get swept up into it? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, part of it, of course, is that all of us are you know aviation fans, and it it kind of hurts to you know. <laughs> Boom is sort of making itself a target at this point because of this this latest redesign. But, you know, I want a new Concorde. <laughs> I mean, that's cool, right? And I know plenty of pilots who are, you know, it's like, they'd love to fly the new Concorde. Uh, in, in other words, there are many people who are just simply, well, enthusiastic about the equipment. And that's great, you know, but... I'm 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 here with my bucket of cold water as a, as an economics type guy. <laughs> it's my job. I apologize, but uh, a lot of this just doesn't look great to me. Now, beyond the EV tow world, there is a lot of money being spent on new propulsion technology, whether it's electric, hydrogen, sustainable aviation fuel. A lot of buzz there, but maybe there's something real there. What do you think is the most promising project there over the next, say, twenty five years? Yeah, this is, of course, hugely important because, you know, we don't want to see the return of flight shaming, especially for business aviation. Every so often you'll see some story about Hollywood stars. They talk about pollution and emissions, but then they get in their Gulf streams. We got to have some kind of defense against that. Right. Um, And the previous answer was, um, you know, we apologize. We're going to be the last part of the economy that decarbonizes. Have a nice day. You know, that's not an acceptable answer. So we're kind of grasping here. Um, it's 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 hard to tell. I, I think for, you know, certain parts of the industry, like, for example, small 9 to 19 seat aircraft, I think you could easily see uh, electrification or, or hybrid kicking in in the next 15, 20 years. That seems reasonable. Hydrogen is terribly div- divisive. There are people who, who are true believers, but I know a lot of very smart people, a lot of smart academics who say, no way, you just can't get there uh, just because of, you know, look, you're carrying around fluid that's that needs to be chilled to negative 257 degrees Celsius. The equipment to do that is going to go where your passengers and payload used to be. That's a bad idea. So I tend to be pretty skeptical of hydrogen based upon talking to uh, people who are smarter than me on it. Um, SAF appears to be the one big hope, especially if you, um, you know, try to shift things in favor of a SAF that can be dropped into existing power plants. The problem here, of course, is uh, watch your feedstock. You know, I mean, if you do this with conventional means, you need a land area the size of Brazil uh, to provide the necessary SAF. It needs to be a, a major breakthrough. And the problem here is that that breakthrough isn't coming from the aircraft industry. It's coming from chemical engineers, biologists, whoever else, who are not in aviation. So we're kind of at the mercy of them from that standpoint. But something has to be done. You know, I mean, again, we've, we, we, from a public image standpoint and whatever else, we're going to have to find a solution by 2050. So for years, the efficiency gains of jet engines, I think, has been one of the more underrated advances in technology, where just every year that jet engines get more and more efficient. From a purely uh, realistic economic standpoint, 
Do you think the effort that goes into that is going to go by the wayside? Are we going to lose some of that inherent efficiency in jet engines because everybody's focused on the moonshot? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. To me, it's the biggest single question mark because this is the great unsung story of aviation. Every year since dawn of the jet age, the late 1950s, we've done about 1% or more better each year on average in emissions reductions and, uh, and fuel burn. That's incredible. I don't think there's any other industry on the planet like that. Cars, no. Shipping, no. Trucks, no. It's We're really great at that. And I'm a little concerned right now because the, um, you know, frankly, the aerospace industrial base seems to be deprioritizing engines, uh, next generation engines. At uh, Farnborough, Rolls-Royce announced that the Ultrafan was effectively being shelved. That's unfortunate. Um, Pratt and Whitney, you know, they, they continue to make progress in scaling up the geared turbofan. I wish them all the best, but I'm not sure I see it a short-term application. Um, I am intrigued by uh, GE and, and uh, Safra and CFM's rise, prop fan. I, you know, I remember prop fans when I was a turbine analyst back in the 80s, and they weren't ready then. Maybe they will be in 15 years. That, to me, is is perhaps the one technology that could really give us double-digit improvements in fuel burn and emissions that I think should be invested that and, and, and continued investment into geared engines. I think there's a lot of hope, you know, but as you say, there is, I've got a real concern and a lot of people have a real concern that a lot of the cash is being dragged away from this practical stuff and towards some kind of, uh, you know, nuclear-powered hybrid electric hydrogen monster. Richard, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with a few more questions. Earn your pilot's license. Get current or add a rating. No matter what your goal is, Sporty's pilot training app will save you time and money. It's available on all your devices, including iPad, iPhone, Android, and smart TVs, so you can access Sporty's award-winning courses anywhere. Plus, with automatic sync between platforms and free lifetime updates, you'll always be up to date. Over 25 courses are available, from private pilot to aerobatics. Visit sporties.com slash discover for a free trial. Now, back to pilot's discretion. Richard, it's certainly been quite a summer for airline travel. The business has been booming, as you mentioned earlier, but canceled flights and lost bags seem like they've been booming as well. I know I've experienced that personally. The airlines say they need more pilots. The pilot unions say they need better working conditions. A lot of people say they need more concrete to land airplanes on. How do you think all this will shake out this moment in the airline business? Well, it's messy, right? I mean, I don't think anybody thought that the market would come back as fast as it had. You know, I mean, just to give it some quick historical perspective, the worst year we'd ever seen in jet era history saw a 3% decline in demand in one year. You know, after 9-11, that was, when you look at it on average, 2001 was a 3% drop Gulf War One, you know, 1973 oil shock, whatever else, it was typically a 3%. Well, in 2000, we saw a 66% drop. <laughs> it's just a completely different order of magnitude. And everyone thought, oh, it's going to take a few years. Well, it's a very fast, lumpy, I guess you could call it, comeback. And that, of course, is straining everything, especially since this is the first time in the history of the business that we are not leading the way. You know, historically, 
aviation leads the way in terms of economic comebacks. Not now. Every other segment of the economy was going gangbusters. We were the last to hire people. A lot of people got jobs elsewhere. Um, and of course, we were the last to sign contracts for just about everything from energy to materials. Things are in short supply. This is hard. This is hard. And I don't w wish w ill on the rest of the economy, far from it. But if things do soften up a little bit, that would free up resources for aviation. That would perhaps be good, again, not to wish ill on the economy. Um, but right now, the broader economy is still doing pretty well, as evidenced by the very, very strong hiring numbers for July that just came out, 528,000, I think. Uh, so I'm a little concerned. I'm concerned that we're going to continue to see uh, bottlenecks, inflation, whatever else. And it's probably going to persist through the rest of the year, the way things are going. They say that necessity is the mother of invention. Do you think born out of this, there will be some lasting changes to the airlines? Or do you think the cycle will just eventually turn and we'll mostly get back to the way things were? Well, you know, the other great economics prediction that if things revert to the mean, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, I'd love to see some improvement. You know, one thing I would really like to see is um, just a completely different way of looking at labor management relations. You know, obviously aviation has always been, you know, sort of a, depending upon your perspective, overly aggressive management or overly militant unions, depending upon your perspective. I'd like to say that people will say, hey, this is crazy. You have the upper hand. We have the upper hand, depending upon the time of day. Why don't we just try to get along here and come up with terms that make both of us happy and, and work together? They do it in Germany. Why can't we do it here? Um, but again, I'm, it's, it's, it's hard to be optimistic about these sorts of things. <laughs> Any conversation about airlines, you have to bring up Boeing, at least in America. And you've been very critical of Boeing management in recent years. One comment you made a, f a while back, I think, sums it up really well. You said, quote, aviation is not like other industries. What do you mean by that, and why is that? Yeah, you know, thank you uh, for, for mentioning that. From my standpoint, you know, it is pretty clear that you've got to take care of your core in terms of design capabilities. You know, engineering design teams in aviation, you know, they got their start in World War II, and we've just kept going. Barriers to entry are extremely high. And despite, you know, efforts to make things more, you know, roboticized with CAD CAM and whatever else, it's uh, still heavily dependent upon the human element. So the idea of saying, well, all right, we don't, you know, we can spread design teams uh, everywhere from, from, you know, Uzbekistan to, to, uh, to, you know, Brazil and not have to worry about maintaining a core product design capability, or we can slash new product uh, development spending for a couple of decades and then hire new people when we, it's time to launch a new jet. It doesn't work like that. You've got to carefully cultivate and protect your product design teams. And some companies do a pretty good job of that. Boeing in recent years has not. They've lost a lot of talent. And I think they've really lost their focus on what makes them unique that ability to create new products that the market wants 
in a timely and effective way. This began perhaps with the Dreamliner, you know, great product, but they said, oh, we'll just get other people to design a lot of it for us. And they've continued this philosophy on the military side, teaming with other people to do a lot of the design work, rather than saying, we've got amazing designers, we need to keep those teams going. And that, I, th- I think, is basically the, the gist of it. We won't get into all the gory details of the 737 MAX, but I'm interested in what you think the right lessons are to learn from this. Have we overreacted in some ways and underreacted in others? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, um, I think we, we focused on, you know, the regulatory aspect is important, you know, making sure that there's oversight and whatever else. But I think the bigger lesson is how Boeing was uh, structured at the time that Max happened. I mean, um, I'm not blaming individuals, but it seemed that you couldn't have asked for a better recipe for engineer disempowerment than the way things were structured at Boeing when the MAX was being de- uh, developed. You had the head of the company, a non-engineer, who frankly had delusions of being an engineer. It was kind of weird. And that would be fine as long as the commercial unit was headed by an engineer, and it was not. So for the first time ever, you had the head of the company, not an engineer, the head of the business unit, not an engineer, and then a bunch, a, a company culture, frankly, that had been shifted heavily in favor of money, making it very clear to people that, yes, they could complain about things like, say, timelines or resources, but it probably wouldn't be great for their career. It, it was a complete recipe for engineering disempowerment that I think helped contribute, not necessarily, you know, there are obviously many, many causes behind the tragedies, but one thing I think contributed was this deprioritization of engineering in the company culture. And I think that's the big lesson that has been somewhat overlooked and, and, and needs to be paid attention to. All right, Richard, we always close these episodes with a segment we call Ready to Copy. So I'll ask some questions on a variety of topics and you give me your quick answer. Are you ready to copy? <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Let's go. You mentioned the Concorde earlier. Was that a success or a failure? You know, technically, it was a space-age miracle, um, you know, but of course, commercially, they sold, quote-unquote, 14. How could that be a success, especially when the 14 were sold to government-owned airlines that, you know, paid for them using taxpayer dollars? I, You know, it, you can't ask for a better disparity between engineering success and commercial failure, but what a plane. Here's one I'm pretty sure I know where you stand on. You called the Airbus A380, quote, a wretched jet born of misplaced nationalism, wishful thinking, and sheer hubris, the worst product launch decision since New Coke. And as somebody who grew up in Atlanta, I can tell you that is a stinging rebuke. Why do you say that? What was so bad about the A380? Oh, boy. (laughs) Everything from from a commercial standpoint, the idea that everyone will always want to change planes in Frankfurt or Narita forever was a complete impoverishment of thinking. Um, the idea that you wouldn't have diminishing returns or route or when it comes to size of jets or route fragmentation for geographic or chronological or brand reasons or whatever else, 
And then on top of that, they decided to cater to one customer, Singapore, that resulted in dumb stubby wings and way too much weight. And they thought maybe, too, that they should basically design a 650-seat jet that would one day be stretched into 650 seats, but was really just 550 seats with a lot of excess structure. There were so many things about that aircraft that was just wrong. And then the way it was launched, you know, it was just a bunch of government ministers deciding this was the right thing to do and overruling any commercial concerns whatsoever. It was, you know, the opposite of a market economy. And Airbus has, to its great credit, reformed itself since, become a far more commercially savvy organization. But back then, it had just as much in common with, you know, some Soviet-era workplace than, <laughs> than, than what, it, what it has become. We've talked about supersonic biz jets and eVTOL products that are probably overhyped, in your opinion, at least. What's one technology that's underhyped? What's something that's actually going to work that more people should be talking about? Hmm. Hmm. You know, I mean, I'll get back to gearboxes. I really like gearboxes. Um, it's only past few years that a geared turbofan has entered service. Uh, again, that prop fan that CFM is promo- provo- uh, proposing is also geared. Um, I'd love to see a return to turboprops. You know, there was a wonderful book David Edgerton wrote, a uh, historian at, uh, in, in Britain called uh, The Shock of the Old, and it argued that it was the, the rediscovery and refinement of older technologies that was just as important to the future as exciting and flamboyant new ones. And gearboxes, turboprops, and everything like that are an older technology, but I think they need to be rediscovered in this time where we're so concerned about emissions and fuel burn. They're hugely relevant. You participate in the selection of the Collier Trophy, perhaps aviation's most prestigious award. you have a favorite winner or a memorable story among the companies and pilots on that list? Oh, boy, there were some great ones uh, that I've, I've had, the, had the honor and pleasure of seeing over the years and, and, and hearing it. <laughs> to be honest, there was, there's, oh, boy, it was University of Maryland, the Gamera program, which was this hard bicycle powered vertical lift thing. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. And of course it, it, it didn't win because it, it hardly changed the world, but just in terms of sheer enthusiasm and, and whatever else of everyone involved, you, you couldn't help, but, but think, Oh my God, these people really made it in a lot of ways going back to the, you know, the Wright brothers, it's the, the heart and spirit of aviation, right? Will Boeing launch a new midsize airplane? It's been 18 years since we saw a clean sheet design. Um, I think it might take new management. I, I think they need to. I think they must do it. The alternative is a 30% market share. Um, will they do it? I, 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 the way I answer this question is it's not in our forecast, but please, please, please prove me wrong. How about China? Will they get a domestic airline business that challenges the Boeing and Airbus duopoly? I'll give you 50-50 on that. There will be a domestic uh, airliner, um, but it's not going to challenge anybody. It looks like China is preparing for a world where it's decoupled from the West. And and it's a, it's one of the great tragedies of our time that China is not integrating with the world is deintegrating and wants to replicate the old Soviet experience of state-owned industries just for, in, for local requirements. So they'll have a, a jetliner and will, uh, it will go absolutely nowhere outside of China. 
You live in Washington, D.C., a place known probably to most people as either a news headline or maybe a school field trip location. So as a resident, what's a myth about Washington that you'd like to bust? Yeah, well, that's exactly it, right? I mean, <laughs> it's a government. the myth is that it's a government town rather than a, a great, great city with terrific neighborhoods, some really great restaurants and really terrific people who don't work in government. That's exactly it. Uh, I think we're we're a terrific city, like a, like a lot of other terrific cities. Once you once you take out the government part, which, which which has its pluses and minuses, but beyond that, we're we're just a great town on our own. Our last question is always the same on pilot's discretion. You have one final flight, and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going. <laughs> wow, that's a great one. Um, Oh boy, one do I get a return trip? I guess if you don't mind me, uh... <laughs> I'll give you a round trip just this once. Oh, I I deeply appreciate that. Um, I'll always regard the triple seven as the great enabler of international flight. So um, one, I took my honeymoon in Bali. Let's uh, let's let's make that it. <laughs> Richard, thanks for being on the podcast. It's really a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Pilot's Discretion, brought to you by Sporties, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and links to additional information, visit sporties.com slash podcast. And if you have comments or guest ideas, email us at podcast at sporties.com. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilot's Discretion. Discretion.